Welcome once again to the Citizens of Tech Podcast. It is late spring, June 12th, 2015 to be precise. And on this day, we sat down to discuss the following. Electronic Legos, quantum encryption, solar-powered flight, and much more. So kick back and ready your ear holes to delve into the nerd fest that is the Citizens of Tech Podcast. <laughs> my name is Eric Zutphen. You can follow me on Twitter at Zutphen. Read my blog at Zutphen.com. And joining me, as usual, is Ethan Banks. Hi, Eric. Hey, How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Is it spring only? It seems like it's summer, is it, it not? I looked this up to be sure. It is officially still spring until the solstice, which is on June 21st. So uh-huh. I, I wrote I wrote up the little intro there and said, it's late spring. And then I said, you know, I better fact check myself because <laughs> I'm, I'm, who, who are we talking to? People that are going to, you know, know this or look it up. <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's funny. There's a show I was recording on on Packet Pushers and uh, uh, Greg Farrow, the co-host there, and I got into a discussion about that somehow referred to trade federations and star trek versus star wars <laughs> oh, we got an email from someone who corrected us and <laughs> because uh, we were wrong um excuse me you're technically incorrect <laughs> exactly we were and he had three urls to prove it <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> that, <was great. laughs> that is awesome oh. so as usual we're gonna kick off with uh, newsy bits from the present tech and then we will proceed to the uh, proceed to the past. I, I always seem to say that we proceed to the past. Mm-hmm. Um, then we will go to the future. So if, if you are not familiar with the uh, format here, it is present, past, and then future. Mm-hmm. So on to the newsy bits. And Ethan, you found something here. So Kickstarter is one of the uh, news feeds that I follow because there's. There's a lot of crap on Kickstarter, just tedious projects that you don't care about. You know, fund my book and it's an, it's an experiment in subway graffiti, you know, or some such thing. You're like, I don't care. But then there's cool stuff that comes up. And one of these things I found was, uh, the Microduino M cookie. It's the smallest electronic modules on Lego is how they describe themselves. And so to understand what Microduino is, you should first know what Arduino is. So I went up to the, uh, the, the Arduino site and just kind of, and it took from there cite the description of what that's all about. And Arduino is a tool, the website says, for making computers that can sense and control more of the physical world than your desktop computer. So it's something you can program with yourself and it interacts with the physical world is the idea. Hmm. So you can make, you know, a bunch of cool projects with some pretty low budget, uh, home, uh, you know, maker friendly kind of prices and, and buy stuff here. So if that's what Arduino in a nutshell is all about, and there's an integrated development environment, there's a programming language and so on that goes along with it, Microduino then is taking Arduino and then uh, putting it into a an interesting little form factor. So they've got this thing called mCookie. Uh, it's a small, stackable electronic hardware uh, component that you can use to make something, some hmm. kind of a project. But the idea is make the pro- make it... So that the electronics aren't in your way, make them stackable, make them easy to consume, and then do something cool is the is the whole idea here. Uh, so the, uh, just to read a bit from the Kickstarter page, Microduino M Cookie Series is an Arduino compatible open source hardware. It can be programmed in an Arduino IDE development environment and, ing- and integrated into existing Arduino sketches. So the the whole stackable thing works like this: they snap together the M cookies, snap together magnetically. Four magnets inside of four corners, so you can connect them quickly, and you know that they're done uh, 
quickly and then correctly because they snap together. So you know you can't get this thing you wrong. You get that satisfying click. Yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> right. Um, and then the way the form factor is, you can integrate them with Lego. So, I mean, they're not technically it's not like a lego set it's, you don't buy microduino m cookies from from lego but the way they built the plastic stackables you can integrate them into lego and in fact some of the projects that they have show uh people that had used some they built some lego thing mm. and then integrated m cookies into the structure to make it like a living thing that actually does something so it's a lego it's cool. compatible yeah yeah uh, exactly. Lego compatibility. We're making it easier than ever for beginners and children. It says on the uh, the Kickstarter page to get started with DIY electronics. Um, so it's got spring loaded pins. So you're not going to bend the pins of this thing and uh, and so on. So it's a cool Kickstarter. Um, go up there and check that out. They got they already have way more money than they were looking for for the initial Kickstarter campaign. I think they needed 40 and they've got like 170 K, something wow. like that. So they've done very well with the project. Um, but I just thought it was kind of neat. It appealed to my inner nerd for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you get computers and Legos together. It's hard to argue. Well, I haven't <laughs> done anything with Arduino to be fair. Yeah. But it's it's one every time I read something, I was like, I totally have to do that. I mean, I bought a Raspberry Pi kind of with the same thing in mind. And I've done a little bit of messing around with the Raspberry Pi, but nothing exciting. I've treated it more like a computer rather than a building block to do something more interesting with. Sure. I, and I need to get beyond. Yeah. And this, this was like another chapter in that book. You know, I'm still very in the very early pages of that book, but at some point I got to, you know, get over the hurdle and actually make something. I, some, I don't care if it's a little robot that rolls around the floor, bumps into a wall and goes, Oh, I bumped into a wall and then turns in a different direction. Sure. Something well, would be cool. The, the, yeah. If you make that, that's great. Exactly. You know? That's, that's the fun of it. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, next item on the list here is is quantum encryption. Oh boy! Which uh, if anyone's ever watched Quantum Leap, that I, I had to throw in the oh boy. When, <laughs> I'll set the reference. Yeah, when, when when he would do his quantum leaps, he'd be in some really awkward position, and that was his catchphrase. Oh boy! So quantum encryption. Oh boy! Uh, this article comes from fizz.org, and basically a research team at the Technical University of Denmark. Uh, and Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Toronto. So it's a collaboration. Um, they've developed a protocol to achieve key rates at metropolitan distances at three orders of magnitude higher than, than previously done with quantum encryption. So standard protocols of quantum key distribution, which, you know, this is an emerging field. Um, they exploit random sequences of of quantum bits or qubits, not the money from <laughs> from Star Trek <laughs> um, to distribute secret keys in a completely secure fashion, because once these are shared by two remote parties, they can communicate knowing that there's no you know interception because of the very basis of what we know of the fundamental laws of quantum physics, the uncertainty principle. Mm -hmm. You know, you you never know when you're looking at it where it is. You just know that it happens exactly right yeah so end to end i mean today's normal communications are, are more vulnerable to eavesdropping but quantum communications are based on single particle levels just photons right now so either it's getting there or it's not there's no way to eavesdrop on this and if you're eavesdropping it actually disrupts the signal so you you can know oh it's being disrupted therefore you know this this is garbage this connection isn't isn't secure. Mm -hmm. um, 
So the mm. biggest problem with this, this is this is a big advance, but the biggest problem is that uh, they're extremely slow right now. So the the big push is to get this up to you know a, a high rate of communication and connection. You know the the vast distances are great, but you're literally sending one photon at a time, which you know it's not exactly broadband at this point. Um, so the one of the guys who was working on this, uh, Doctor Perandola, said you want a high rate and fast connection, particularly for systems that serve a metropolitan area. You have to transmit a lot of information in the fastest possible way. Essentially, you need the quantum equivalent of broadband. Um, so. You know, this is a very, very early stage. I mean, quantum encryption is a brand new emerging field um, relative to other technologies. But we're talking about being able to transmit over 25 kilometers of distance uh, these quantum endpoints. Mm. So it's a it's a big advancement. It's one of those things. Once we figure it out, the use cases will be many again. Yeah, it's just it's just really rough today. And in, in, in the last last show, we talked about. We, we use the same phrase. It's like, this is really cool, and we're not sure how we're going to really use it yet, but it's really cool. Yeah, and, you know, exactly. we're kind of saying the same thing with this one. But, yeah, really interesting. Not real practical at the moment. But You, you found something else on, uh, I guess, Amazon is trying to find new and, and different ways to get you to buy stuff. Is that what this Echo thing you found is all about, or is this something else? Yeah, so Echo is uh, this home speaker slash uh, digital personal assistant that – it, it's really compelling if you're okay with, you know, signing away all kinds of information. Now, they, they tout, you know, that this thing never listens unless you say the key word, which the default is Alexa. It's called Alexa. So you say, Alexa, what's the weather like in Seattle? And it'll spit it out. You know, okay, what about the five-day forecast? And it'll spit it out. So it's contextually aware and all this. Now, so the, this thing is you can, you can look at this sort of demo thing at Amazon.com slash Echo. And they have a little video that shows how it works. And it's really uh, – the video is kind of hokey. The dad is the classic bumbling father that you know is super attached to this uh, non-living device and thinks it's the greatest thing that's going to solve all the problems. But anyway, the, the, the tech behind it is really cool. Basically, you can, you can talk to this thing and it will contextually figure out what you're saying. And they have some really uh, interesting, really cool – sound uh sensing technology so you can be anywhere in the house basically and if you're loud enough and it hears the keyword it will start listening mm -hmm. now that's all well and good but the other really cool thing is that i could be talking about this to you right now and you know someone else walks in the room and i'm continuing to speak to you about this and as long as i don't use a keyword it's not going to listen to me but if they say the keyword even while i'm speaking it will tune in to that person mm -hmm. and listen to their request and answer them, even though there's background noise of me speaking. So um, when did uh, the NSA contract Amazon to make this device? <laughs> Seven years ago. No. <laughs> um, it, that, that's one of the things they, you know, they don't directly address that, but they do specifically say it only it only listens when you say the keyword. Like, no, it listens constantly. Yeah, it, it has it's listening to. for the keyword. It, yeah. Exactly. Um, oh, my but, goodness. Yeah. So basically you can say, you know, oh, we need, you know, we need diapers. Yeah. Alexa, we need diapers and it'll add, you know, whatever diapers you have 
you know, that you regularly yeah. purchase to your shopping it, list. And if I remember right, that is kind of the crux of this. If it's coming from Amazon, they're it, selling. Whether it's a Kindle device yeah. or a, you know a Fire phone or whatever it is, it's really trying to tie you into that Amazon shopping ecosystem. At, if if we want to look at it from from, that's, from Amazon's point of view, yeah, that's, that's how the they're monetizing it. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, it's I think it's a hundred and fifty dollars for Prime subscribers, yeah. um, but they are sort of branching off into home automation. So if you have you know Wi-Fi light bulbs and things like this with the Internet of Things, you can actually say Alexa, dim the lights, mm. and it'll hook into your home automation and, and do that. So it, it's more than just a selling platform, but yeah, they, they want you to buy with it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort of um, tying into that whole Amazon dash and the dash buttons thing. I don't know if you've seen that you can, you get these yes, dedicated yes, buttons. Yes, that yes, you yes. Hit. Yeah. It, I, I need a refill. Of yeah. You just, detergent. yeah, I'm out Bang. of laundry detergent. So you hit the button that's, that's yeah. stuck to your uh, washer and no, it, it orders it, it. it. Sure. It's built around Amazon and their ecosystem and you buying stuff through Amazon. I, but it's still cool tech. You can't oh, take that away. It's some pretty yeah. neat stuff. Yeah. All right. Moving on to uh, something that I found here in the uh, the astronomy world called Dragonfly. So Dragonfly, just in a nutshell, if you, it's it's kind of a telescope. It takes ten Canon four hundred millimeter lenses, slams them together into an array, and then can capture really low light images mm. out there in space for for a budget price. So rather than having to have a massive mirror and a bunch of super expensive, highly polished, uh, extra special lenses to capture these, this low load imagery. This kind of puts it's, well, it's still expensive. These yeah. lenses are, well, relatively like, speaking. I think each of these lenses was $10,000 a piece, something like that. So, but, I mean, 10 of them, you're into six figures, but, but you're mean, not talking millions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, this we found uh, at a University of Toronto site up in Canada where they talk a bit about Dragonfly. And so from this site, they mention um, this was designed for a specific purpose here. So there's evidence of small galaxies merging into larger ones that can be stream that can be seen in faint streams and filaments visible around the galaxy and nearby M31 galaxies. This is kind of, we're trying to prove some things about Mm. the nature of the universe here is, is the idea and uh, small galaxies merging into larger ones is part of this. So there is a prediction here. Cold dark matter cosmology. This is, this is a, like a scientific thing. Cold dark matter cosmology predicts that we should see more of this structure, the merging structure, than we do. Even the very best possible images contain scattered light that could be hiding this faint structure that we should see around these these galaxies. Okay, so then what's Dragonfly all about? Dragonfly is designed to reveal the faint structure by greatly reducing scattered light and internal reflections within its optics. And it achieves this using 10 commercially available Canon 400 millimeter lenses. And it uses a very special, in fact, they say unprecedented <laughs> nanofabricated coating with sub-wavelength structure on optical glasses. Um, okay, so then with that system in place, what Dragonfly does is it images a galaxy using these multiple lenses simultaneously, kind of like a Dragonfly's compound eye, so that's how it gets its name, enabling further removal of unwanted light, and then what you get is an image that is uh-huh. uh, of an extremely faint galaxy structure. Uh, so therefore, you can begin proving this cold dark matter uh, theory of cosmology. If it's accurate, these right. are the things you should be able to see. Here's an imaging system that allows you potentially to see that if it's actually there. And and it it sounds like it works because it's 10 different lenses. So you're taking 10 real-time samples of the image 
and when you have the scattered light that gets into one lens but not in another it, it now can, can filter it yeah, out via software gets filtered out or whatever that's my understanding of that plus the very special optics yeah is how i understand it to be working yeah so I just thought it was a cool thing. If nothing else, go. We have the link in the show notes. Just go up to the link and look at this thing. Mm. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. You're, you're looking yours at it, for a cool hundred one. grand. <laughs> I don't know what I'll do with it, but I want one. <laughs> Very awesome. <laughs> so on to uh, internet health test. Lots of people are aware of the internet health tests. You know, go there to figure out or the, the speed test, yeah, like on DSL test or you know, it, your cable it, provider might have one. Yeah. Where, you know, is there a is there a, a high a high tier uh, issue between providers? You know, AT and T and and all this, um, or even just a basic trace route, right? Um, you can use to detect. Okay, my response time just went in the tank as soon as I crossed over into this other provider. If you're exactly. looking at the host names that are coming back to you from the trace route. So one of the things, I mean, you know, if if you're a citizen of tech, uh, net neutrality is on your radar, I almost guarantee. And so the Internet Health Test uh, at battleforthenet.com, actually, they've implemented a new thing here where it it checks your connection for signs of degradation uh, where – Large service ISPs are – they're degrading performance of the customer's traffic. At the junction s- points. At the junction points. That, yeah. Slyly sort of flying in the face of net neutrality. So so that that's the point of this whole thing is you can run the internet health test and if you, look at the fact that's on the internet health test, by the way. Again, battleforthenet.com slash internet health test, all one word. And you you can get into this. They explain the, the test and what it's all about, and uh, and the fact is really worth reading. Gets into the nitty gritty of how it does it. But the point is, when you run this test, it is uh, it's checking your hops along the way for throughput and so on. And then, as an internet provider connects to another internet provider at that junction point, it can particularly point out what problems might be there because that tends to be where the the net neutrality stuff gets violated. Yeah. We're going to put a tax on traffic coming from this internet service provider and throttle it yep. or whatever we're going to do with it. Um, and that, that's kind of a, a toll system. Yeah. If you oh, absolutely. And, and the goal here is to, to hopefully keep the ISPs honest. Exactly. Exactly. Which, you know, net neutrality now being, I, mean, I don't know when is there legislation actually in place at this point. I've actually lost track of the FCC rulings, but yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. it's I not think, real strong. Well, right, there was an enforceability concern yeah, last oh, I remember. Huge enforceability issues, yeah. but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth checking out. It was really interesting to to dig around and, like you said, read the fact and read yeah, all re- the information. We don't have about to go it. into it, but read the fact. It goes into how it's different from DSL reports, speed tests, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So. So another article that I found kind of related here is uh, from Tom's Hardware. So Tom'sHardware.com, he they do lots of very detailed nitty gritty reviews of components. Any of you that have built a, C- a PC ever in your life, you spent time on Tom's Hardware. I can just about guarantee it. Yep. They got lots of very solid nerdy content. One of them was best VPN services for 2015. VPN services, meaning, oh, like my Cisco router and I VPN to it. No, not that kind. The kind <laughs> that you would actually use as, a, you know, personally as a, I don't want to say a home user, but that, but that kind of thing where you want to hide your IP address, you want to have an extra level of privacy for what you're doing. And there's a bunch of services out there that you can get. A few of them are free. Most of them you pay some kind of subscription for. And this article on Tom's Hardware, which, again, we will link to in the show notes, 
speaks to them and does a review by serving the the audience, basically Tom's hardware readers. Mm. Who's using what VPN service? What do you think of it? And so on. Because when you get into VPN and, and proxy services, these kind of things for privacy, performance is a concern. Oh, huge. Well, because the whole thing is you got to set up a VPN client that right. then takes all of your traffic and tunnels it out to somewhere on the internet and then goes and gets the whatever it is the content is you're yep. looking for. And, and what protocol you're using and what their infrastructure is like and, and all that all factors in. How far away they are from yep. you factors in. Um, which can vary just depending if they're a globally distributed service and how widely uh, distributed are they. And or if so you're trying on. to watch Netflix from, you know, another country. <laughs> so <laughs> that would never happen. No, Wait, one I think does it that. talks about that exactly in the article. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to stream um, Doctor Who from the BBC in the United States. <laughs> so the Tom's Hardware article is worth, uh, worth a read if you're interested in that kind of thing. They talk about services like IP Vanish, TourGuard, PIA, and several other ones, exactly zero of which I've ever used. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting. It comes up on cord cutters all the time on uh, Reddit. Oh, sure. Yeah, the cord, cut, cord cutter subreddit people are talking about for exactly that reason all the time. I'm an expat. I live in the UK now. I want to access this American service or another. How do I get at it? You yep. know, uh, or Netflix yep. or yeah, Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a solar it's a flight, stuff. huh? It's, well, yeah. So there's a. <laughs> I found this thing. This actually came up from uh, from CNN. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking at this, this and, article. I'm looking at this and just it popped into my head. He could go all the way. Nope. <laughs> so the article was about a, a solar-powered plane that was going to cross the Pacific. Which, which is awesome. Anyone who's familiar with uh, global geography knows the Pacific Ocean is a long darn thing to cross. It's kind of large. Uh, and his goal here was in this solar-powered plane to go from China to Hawaii. So I wouldn't call that crossing the Pacific exactly. but you got to make it to California or it's something you know, South America yeah. or something. Yeah. But, but I mean, anyway, China to Hawaii, pretty extraordinary. Mm. Uh, and if the weather had been good, he supposedly would have made it. Only the weather sucked. And he went from China to Japan, which is closer. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's slightly short of the goal. But nonetheless, impressive. nonetheless, the tech of this plane was was pretty neat. So the, there's some stats that the CNN article talked through. Um, it's a 3.8 cubic meter cockpit. That is not a lot of cubic meters. No, that is not many cubic meters. <laughs> this, this is a small cockpit, 3.8 cubic meters. And the pilot is strapped into a seat that's both his bed and his toilet. Oh, crap. <laughs> so, <I> mean, <laughs> well, yes, crap. Exactly. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, so, I mean, it can recline so you can rest, do a little bit of exercise uh, and so on. But it's, wow. again, this is a pretty tight space, yeah. right? So at night, if it's not turbulent, um, in, in other words, you don't need to really babysit the plane, mm. you can activate the autopilot and you can take a nap. I mean, no more than probably 20 minutes at a time. Doesn't seem like that would be wise according to the article. But uh, but you've got autopilot. You've got uh, the ability to take a brief nap. Um, and the, these pilots, there's a couple of pilots here, uh, a guy named Borschberg, another guy named Picard. Oh, yeah. Picard, of course. Captain Picard. Uh, although two C's, two C's. No, not the yeah. one C. So mm. not the same guy. Captain Picard. <laughs> <laughs> they, these guys trained in meditation and self-hypnosis so that they could concentrate for long periods of time. 
And they also spent time learning yoga so that they could relax in the plane's tiny little cockpit. So, like, there's two guys in this 3.8 meter Well, I square. couldn't figure that out from the article. Because it seems like you could just let the other guy no, fly I, while I, you I, I don't think slept. No, I think there were two guys that they alternated different legs of the flight. I, I don't oh, think there's okay. you know, two people piloting gotcha, the plane gotcha. at a time. Okay, so I it's not think. a continuous. It wasn't meant to be a continuous flight. Or do we know? Well, it was meant to be continuous from China to Hawaii, and they just made it to Japan. Oh, so, But okay. I think it's only one pilot in the plane at a time. Uh, okay, so the plane, which is called Solar Impulse, it packs enough food, water, sports drinks, and so on, so that the pilot can last for about a week, uh, in just in case weather problems force it to stay in the air longer than expected. So this is not a fast plane either. Mm, no. No, because uh, you can do a cross-Pacific flight in 18 hours, something along those lines, depending on where you're going. Yeah. If you're going to Tokyo, is probably different from if you're going to... Yeah, I think it's like 16 to Tokyo, is is my guess. Boy, I'm not... No. Well, I got to think about that. Cause I've been from the West Coast of Hawaii before, and that's a long frigging flight. I think it's like 11 hours or 12 hours. So, yeah, maybe maybe Tokyo is uh, you know 18 hours from the West Coast U.S. I'm sure someone's... Uh, firing up a tweet so, to someone that's citizens of tech it, yeah. right now and going <laughs> someone that's done it guys. correct us i've never flown to the west coast let alone from the west coast so. <laughs> the solar impulse also has oxygen bottles a parachute and a life raft in case it gets into trouble uh and you know these guys got to ditch the plane or, or some such thing but all of that to say solar powered plane it's pretty awesome that's yeah that is cool um it's even more extraordinary if you think about how woefully inefficient solar cells still are. They really are at this point. And I, I'm, I'm thinking about the rotation of the Earth. They're sort of fighting the rotation of the Earth at that point, aren't they? Oh, no. Yeah, they're fighting it because the Earth is going to turn, you know, sun rises in the east. They're going from west to east. You know what just popped in my head? Superman flying around the Earth really, really fast in that movie and making time go backwards. <laughs> Thanks no, for that. He, he's reversing the rotation of the earth. No, he's reversing time. He's <laughs> eternal battles in uh, comic and nerdy movies. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> Sorry to totally derail that. But yeah, absolutely. Mm. So um, moving on to uh, kind of into the gaming world again. Yay. Oh, uh, this is another Kickstarter project I found called Glove One. So Glove One is – the whole theme here is feel virtual reality. That's that's what this is. So I remember reading about this going back. I was a computer science teacher once upon a time, and I read some you know future articles to the class because trying to make computers yeah. cool and stuff, right? Like in the 90s. And so, so at that yeah. time, we were talking about some kind of a suit that you could wear that would make virtual reality feel real. Give yeah. your skin some sensations and your body some sensations of what's going on. And we talked about this a little bit, that car racing simulator mm. we, we, we hit in show four, maybe. Um, show seven? I don't remember which one. But uh, but where there were G-forces that could be exerted on the occupant in the plane. Sure. Um, and so this is, you know, an even further evolution of that, this, this glove one. So the whole thing here is uh, it's about translating touch sensations into vibrations and there's 10 actuators attributed along the palm and the fingertips of the glove which vibrate independently at different frequencies and intensities to reproduce accurate touch sensations oh so it's it's haptic basically like when you use your phone and it gives you that little bit of feedback uh it, 
That's in, what it sounds like. There's in, 10 haptic things embedded in this. That is, in fact, what they say on their page, that Glove One is all about haptic feedback. It doesn't provide space tracking features yet, so they're looking at auxiliary sensors like Leap Motion or Intel RealSense for hand tracking. Uh, but you can integrate Glove One with those sensors or any other sensor or technology like Microsoft Connect or OpenCV. Um, and then uh, possibly they're going to integrate with tracking systems like Lighthouse from uh, from Valve. Which so you is, get the haptic yeah. feedback and then you integrate it with one of these other sensor systems to make that haptic feedback make sense with what you're seeing. Yeah, when you've got the HTC headset on from Valve or whatever. It gives you that feedback in your hands. That's that's a really cool idea. It is cool. Um, and this project is only going to get funded if they get $150,000. They're trying to make, I think, 700 gloves, uh, 700 models of the glove, not models, 700 uh, uh, production run of Glove One. And sort they like need a bunch of money to do it. 200 they, and something dollars each is what they're... Something like that, yeah. Um, but they need more money, definitely. Yeah. At this recording, they were at the... Forty-ish thousand dollar funding level and need one hundred and fifty to actually make the initial run. Was there so, a bunch of time left, or uh, they have to have it pledged by July 9th, two thousand fifteen? So yeah, these. I mean, these Kickstarters and Indiegogos and stuff they tend to ramp up as the the due date approaches. But so by the time you hear this, you'll still have time to donate to that Kickstarter. And there were, as usual with Kickstarters, a lot of levels of oh, what yeah. you get, depending yeah. on how much money you $5 get. $5 backing and a thank you on the, in the $5 gets you a thank you. $10 gets you a hug, <laughs> you know, and then it moves on up. And if you, you know, donate a lot, a lot, a lot of money, they give you a lot, a lot, a lot of love. So I'll so. be interested to see how a product like this will tie into, I, I showed you that video a while back of something called the void it's this warehouse that they're building to integrate with virtual reality. Uh, we'll, we can put a link to it in the show notes. We won't dive into it deeply here, but it's an interesting idea where they build a custom warehouse. It's like paintball in VR, essentially. And mm. they build this custom facility for these particular programs that they write. But I'm a little doubtful that, you know, custom facilities with virtual overlays are going to be right. This was the one where if you looked at the box without the headset on, it just looks like, you know, plywood walls walls and and boxes and objects. But then you put the headset on and you're it overlays on top of that. Right. So there's a fence in front of you in the game and it's really just a piece of plywood in front of you in the real world. Yeah. But it it allows you to duck under cover and and all this. So, again, we'll put a link in the notes. But. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it ties in and, and if either of these really make a big splash in the near future. So on to Thunderbolt 3 and USB Type-C joining forces for one port to rule them all. Yeah, about time. Yeah, it's, seriously. It's <laughs> I'm sick of different ports. Get on with it. <laughs> I'm, and I'm tired of old USB as well. I'm yep. glad to see USB-C um, moving, on, moving on in the world. And But I didn't... Thunderbolt's cool because it's fast, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But 40 gigabits a second. Really? Do I have to have, you know, different USB stuff and different Thunderbolt stuff? Just, just, just give me a port, guys. Come Pointless. on. Yeah. Just combine it. So, yeah, it's it's being merged and uh, it's going to support full USB 3.1 and power based on the uh, USB spec. And it's going to push up to 100 watts for notebook charging. And deliver Jeepers. 15 watts for bus power devices. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's a big deal. Oh, cool. Thunderbolt 3, 40 gig per second will allow for dual 4K monitor support over yeah. one cable. Yeah. 
How awesome is that's that? Of data. Then you just need a seven hundred dollar, a pair of seven hundred dollar monitors. <laughs> oh, and then you could do it, ten gig Ethernet networking across yep. that Thunderbolt three line as well. And yeah, we're looking at this shipping. The the unified port standard uh, should ship before the end of twenty fifteen, and then support will obviously grow through twenty sixteen. Um, it's yeah, this is a really compelling development. So one of the things to watch for will be cables with this. I'll be curious to see because a lot of the way you get the big data over the distances, you have to have a magical cable that can handle that. So we'll three easy payments of ninety nine ninety nine. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, they may unify the port standard, so we'll have USB, uh, USB Type C and Thunderbolt three being one port, and then to get all the performance out of it, I think cables will be an interesting thing to uh to watch out for yeah anyway coming soon pay attention to that development i mean the only thing that's out right now with USB-C is the new mac laptop does that sound I right i think there's a, a handful of other ultra books that debuted around the same time okay like the lenovo i think has one that has USB-C and uh all that but it's it's extremely limited at this point mm. um so there there won't be a huge uh install base to to overcome at least yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah. so no death watch today but 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 we we have a new section we wanted to add called uh trivia or today i learned or something or did you know or the more you know the little star but it it struck eric and i that we're a pair of nerds that love arcane bits of trivia and we know you do too because you're who you are citizens of tech so uh so they so may not always be they may not always be tech related like this one isn't but i i read this and it just instantly i was like whoa that's really cool so today i learned that by u.s law no u.s military officer is ever allowed to outrank george washington and to make sure that this never happens he was posthumously promoted to six star general just to make sure <laughs> that is awesome <laughs> now for for anyone who's not aware to become a five star general is a big thing i i think there's less than five ever you know eisenhower and a, a couple of other it's it's a it's not even an official rank that you can achieve. It's a granted rank. So to be six star is just, I think it, it actually would take an act of Congress literally to <laughs> promote someone else to six star. <laughs> so I just thought that was really cool. We, we love George Washington so much. No one can ever exceed his rank. <laughs> that is. Yeah, I love it. That's cool. All right. So let's move from the present section into the past. And, uh, <laughs> Eric and I got reminiscing about uh, about modems. Now, thinking back to this, what's the? I mean, the earliest modem that I remember from back in the day was three hundred baud. Yep, me too. Yeah, my buddy had an IBM eighty eighty eight, and it had a three hundred baud coupler modem. Yeah, that his dad used it for work. We didn't have any use for it, but it no. was amazing. But are we talking roughly bytes per second, bits per second? I've actually forgotten what the measurement exactly is. I believe it's bits, but could be bits. But we're talking very slow, kids. So, so you youngins who have never heard of anything slower than broadband, <laughs> and DSL <laughs> makes you cry because it's so slow. Yeah, so BOD. Thanks to Wikipedia, BOD is pulses per second. So this was right. 300 pulses per second. 
So yeah, it's it's essentially bits. So it's three hundred bits a second if it's three hundred baud. <laughs> so that is that is really slow. Now, I mean, the technology for this really ramped up quickly. You what you would use a modem for would be to. I can't believe I'm explaining this, but it, the reality is, there's probably a lot of people listening to this who go that never used. I don't them. know what a modem is. These people are old. Uh, <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> You would you would you plug into the plain old telephone system with a phone cable. You dial out to some other modem on the other end that would then translate your uh, analog signal into something digital and get you on a network of right. some sort, whatever and, that was. I mean, the term modem literally means modulate and demodulate. Yes. So it's that's where the term came from. It would take tones and convert it to to binary uh, transmittable data. And yeah, and, and, and so you know, as an early in the, my early days of networking, I managed a number of modem banks for in incoming uh, lines. Mm. I managed a Cisco router, the model of which escapes me. Other than you couldn't get one now if you wanted to, but it had you could T1 dial lines that were channelized, and every one of those channels was an inbound for a modem line. And then the job of that router was to translate the incoming PPP. Uh, handshake, authenticate, and then put people onto the IP networks that whoever was on the other end could run some program, whatever yeah. it was. Access it was. I think I was working for state government at the time, so it was to access some sort of state government system. Sure. So I mean, but so but for personal use, I mean, there were modems that went three hundred, and then seemed like pretty quickly we went to twelve hundred, twenty four hundred, then ninety six hundred was around for. It was kind of like the standard for a long for time, like a year or two. And I forget there was a technical barrier there that kind of kept you from going further than that for a while there was some yeah i don't recall what it was but yeah there was some barrier issues maybe in in compression and all that but yeah because then 9600 you went from 9600 to 14.4 and for me this was we're going back to 1993 i remember shopping for a modem oh yeah and do i get the 96 do i get the 14.4 because it was a lot more money to go to the 14.4 And I was like, man, but that's a lot more speed. 50% it's, more speed. It's, it's not doubled, but it's a lot more. You know, and I actually sprung for the uh, the 14.4. Yeah, I, I went from 2,400 on my 286 to, to a 14.4. Oh, and it's been like it, it was speed. It was like crack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here's a question. Why why did you get a modem? Or, or what were you accessing with the modem, maybe? Um, so with the 2,400 baud... I was exclusively accessing BBS's bulletin board systems. Yes. So, and 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 you have expressed that you used these too. There's a few, yeah. And here here in New Hampshire, there were I don't know twenty or so. I think back when I was doing this, I remember some regional ones. Yeah, yeah. and and I I used like four or five of them because they all offered different things and they ran different software. In fact, that's that's one of the things that. We but want the, to talk but the idea about behind a bulletin board system is it was all text-based. Rather than being on the internet, you were on this local system that other people could be dialed into. You could leave messages. You could swap pictures. You could do a lot of internet-y kind of things, only in a very low-bandwidth ASCII sort of environment. Yep. Which doesn't mean you could 
couldn't download pictures. I mean, you could download pictures. That's back, you know, GIF and JPEG, and you were very concerned about your compression rates and the quality of the images and, and all that sort of stuff because everybody was on a friggin' modem where it took a long time to download anything. Exactly. So we had, you, you, to get up an image that was, uh, you know, 200K, let's say, which is nothing in the broadband world. It would take a long it would, you, time. You'd take a long time to download it. And so you wanted to, you know, make sure what you were getting was something you actually wanted to get. And the other thing is you, you would download this thing based on the file name and description and you'd watch this progress bar yeah. and then <laughs> the file would just show up in the directory that you saved it to. So it's not like you're seeing the picture load in real time. No, no. You're downloading the file and then you're going opening a, a Windows Explorer or whatever finder window type thing and and opening it up and seeing the, the image and then going, that is not a picture of a Lamborghini. Yeah. <laughs> 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 or whatever, you know. Um, now, there were some pretty popular BBSs out there. Yeah. I mean, there there were some huge ones with dozens of lines. And that was one of the big things is you needed one phone line from the phone company that you paid for dedicated to each person that could simultaneously be logged into your BBS. And then there was um, – and then there were the different packages out there. You know, there, there, there was Wildcat. Yeah. Um, then you, uh, which I remembered, and then you also added Spitfire and Citadel, which I, I'm not actually familiar with. Yeah. So Wildcat was the big one uh, that I used. There was a BBS in this area uh, called Victory Lane, and it, you know, in this area we have uh, Loudon International Speedway or whatever they're calling it this year. Now, is that what it's actually called now? I don't know. It used to be New Hampshire. In, oh no! Now it's New Hampshire International Speedway. I think, but uh-huh. whatever. I don't. I can't keep up. <laughs> Nor do I keep up with NASCAR. Half mile track so oval. Yeah, it's international. Turn left. Yeah, turn boy. left. Turn left. Turn left. No offense, NASCAR fans, but uh, turn left. Um, so Victory Lane ran Wildcat, and they had they actually had two different systems. One was the the regular text based, where you would you know dial in, it would connect, you would username, password, and then you had this text selection where you put numbers or letters to choose what you wanted to do. Um, they also had internet email integrated. Mm. So you could actually send internet email through this. That's the first oh, so way they, they'd be a gateway. They would relay your mail to the internet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Sure. So you had an internal email address that they then, you know, through headers or whatever would, would relay emails out for you. Uh, that was really cool. And then their second system, this came out, this was mid nineties, actually wildcat put out a GUI, based bbs that basically made the bbs load you would dial up and it loaded in a browser and it looked like a windows 95 desktop and so you would click on stuff instead and this was revolutionary to me because i didn't have actual internet access until i think 96 so this was 94 95 and uh wildcat was a a a really popular one spitfire and citadel i just happen to remember those two pieces of software based on a couple of other bbs's that i was on but um and then you 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 mentioned you know as far as modem use goes delphi delphi was an early uh very large um kind of place community i guess would be the best way to describe it compuserve type yeah 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 Yeah. compuserve kind of like aol it was in that world and uh, the big attraction to delphi for me was um uh, forums they had forums that you could go in and you could chat about stuff Mm. just like they've got uh bulletin board systems today and forum systems and so on that's that they're all web-based you know, this was uh, with Delphi, you could go in and subscribe to a bunch of different forums and then just get out there and, and 
chat with other people. And since it was all text-based, I mean, yeah. all you you know, you don't need fancy web graphics or whatever to make that go and avatars and so on. You just, you've got your ID and you go and get in the form and say what you're going to say. And, uh, and there was a package you could buy a software package called rainbow reader. If I remember right, that would let, that would kick off your modem, dial into Delphi, authenticate, hit all your forms, download all the messages that mm-hmm. had come on the forms you followed, disconnect you. So you weren't tying up the phone line for too long. Uh, and then let you compose your replies offline and then dial up and send your replies and, you know, all that stuff. It was yeah, great. That's clever. Oh, yeah. It was so it, sort of like uh, Usenet, sort of the same idea or yeah, kind of like more forumy than kinda Usenet like that, really. But, but more forumy. I mean, yeah, it was more uh, more individual community based. I mean, and everyone had a Delphi account. And so that was the common thread that kept sure. you all together. But, gotcha. But again, the whole modem thing was. Uh, I mean, before too long, I ended up in a broadband world where cable modems were uh, accessible and it was an always on connection and I could build a home network, which I've had for many, many, many years now. Yep. Uh, and I, I really never looked back. I mean, when I went from a 14.4, I'm sure I had a 28.8 and 56K modems at some point and they never really went beyond that. I mean, you were into different technologies at that point. You were moving into like ISDN if you wanted something faster than 56K. Right. And, uh, you know, Which bonding ridiculously channels. Yeah. And, and right, not affordable by mere mortals. That was a, that was a business sort of a connection at that yeah, point. Yeah, I went, I went from uh, 56K to broadband and then moved to a place where it was in the middle of the city, but because of weird contract negotiations, there was no DSL and no cable internet. Mm. So I went back to 56K after like, Five years of broadband. Did you cry? I did, and I I did not renew my lease. Do, do you need a hug? Do you still need a hug? I need several hugs. Still. <laughs> Everyone give Eric a hug had, because of that transition. Had broadband for uh, 10 years <laughs> since then, and it's yeah. still a sore subject. But anywho. So that was the past. Let's look ahead to the future. Mr. Sutphin, you found something about about battery tech again? I know you're shocked that <laughs> I was interested in oh, future battery tech. Did there. Oh, uh, no. Oh, oh. <laughs> so, yes, once again. Nerd the, puns. Uh, electric pun. Uh, yeah, no, it's no surprise that uh, I was looking at future battery tech. That's one of my one of my big topics. So uh, this I found this on Science Daily uh, and, and basically said that, you know, Chemists at the University of Waterloo have discovered the key reaction that takes place in sodium oxygen batteries that could pave the way for development of the so-called holy grail of electrochemical energy storage. So why this is a big deal is sodium oxygen batteries are considered by many to be particularly promising uh, in in the realm of metal oxygen batteries. Uh, They're less energy dense than lithium oxygen cells. They can be recharged, though, with more than 93% efficiency, and they're cheap enough for large-scale electrical grid storage. So unlike a normal solid-state battery design, metal oxygen battery uses a gas cathode that takes oxygen and combines it with a metal, like sodium or lithium in this case, Mm -hmm. to form a metal oxide. So you've got sodium oxide or lithium oxide, and that stores electrons in the process. So then... Applying an electrical charge uh, current to it reverses the reaction and reverts the metal to its original form. So it just becomes normal sodium or normal lithium again. So the, the big key thing here is lithium oxygen and sodium oxygen batteries have a very promising future, says the one of the guys who did the research here. But their development must take into account the role of how high capacity and reversibility 
of the process can be scientifically achieved. So again, it's proof of concept, but. Okay. So where, where am I going to use this sort of a battery? I mean, does this go into a Tesla? Does this go, cause you said something about, you know, like re- storing really large amounts of electricity. Yeah. So we're talking potentially right now, large scale storage for, for grid supplement and things like that. So sort of like a Tesla power wall type idea or, or the like, Okay, but ultimately based on what I read, I didn't, this wasn't actually in the article that I saw, but it sounds like this is potentially a replacement for uh, lithium ion. Mm. So you might be seeing this sort of technology in phones, uh, laptops, okay, okay, okay. Tesla cars, electric cars. We know, like we know Tesla has been working on the lithium ion stuff and p- trying to push that technology further this sounds like a different sort of technology that could actually has has bigger potential than yeah. the lithium stuff different branch of the same yeah mm. the same tree but mm, uh, mm, yeah mm. potential to sort of disrupt our, our current battery technology so i figured it was worth mentioning yeah cool and that brings us to the end of citizens of tech for today yeah we uh had a blast discussing these things as always you can follow the podcast at citizens of tech on twitter and you can follow us on Twitter as well. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks uh, out there on Twitter. And my blog is EthanCBanks.com. I am Eric Zutphen at Zutphen on Twitter. And my blog is Zutphen.com. Thanks for listening and have a great week, everyone. Talk to you soon. Bye.